episode 26 of Nature's Pulse. My name is John Lieber. You can reach me on Twitter or Instagram, which is at jungle underscore capital. This episode is for the week of March 8th. We are going to talk about um, a lot of things that happened this week, such as uh, warm-blooded fish, um, some new species that uh, were found in the archaeological uh, record in Antarctica, We'll talk about Woman's uh, Day that happened this week. We will also talk about um, Maurice Strong, a Canadian who founded the UNEP, and several in other environmental stories. So let's uh, let's dive right into it. Start with a very cool map that I came across just randomly. And I'm sorry if you're listening to the podcast and can't see it, but I'm going to go through um, what it is and uh, some of the highlights of it. To, to, to describe it a little bit. So it's a map of uh, the national animals of every country. So it shows a world map along with uh, um, some pictures of what their national animal is. And it also um, classifies if it's uh, what type of animal it is and, um, if, and the conservation status of that animal. It's really nice to look at and it also says a lot. So I just want to walk through some of the highlight highlights of the country and i'm trying to think about where most of the audience uh is from that they will probably be familiar with their animals but some of them are uh are not what you expect so of course canada where i'm from they got the beaver and it's in the least concerned conservation status america of course the the bald eagle now the least concern after they address the ddt issues there uh let's see what else we got the bahamas is uh the flamingo uh in colombia we have the condor and what's that conservation status near threatened uh brazil is the jaguar also uh, near threatened uh bolivia is the llama least concern uh you may know that Scotland's national anthem or a national animal for no reason is the well I'm sure there's a reason but uh, randomly I should say is a unicorn I don't know what the conservation status of that is uh, Sweden is the moose a least concern uh, Finland is brown bear least concern Spain is a bull least concern <sighs> What else do we have here? Nigeria is an eagle, least concern. Tanzania is the giraffe. Uh, What is the conservation symbol for that? That's vulnerable. Uh, Botswana is a zebra, which is least concern. Let's see what Zimbabwe is. I have a roommate from Zimbabwe and uh, antelope, least concern. Madagascar is the famous ringtail lemur and it's near threatened. Somalia is a ringtailed lemur as well, uh, near, near threatened. That's really interesting because I did not know that lemurs were <clears throat> in Somalia. Uh, Saudi Arabia is the camel, uh, India, the Royal Bengal tiger, uh, near threatened, 
China is the giant panda, vulnerable. Uh, Japan is the green peasant, least concern. And this is a surprising one for Philippines. So it's, it's actually the caraboa. I think a lot of people would have thought it was the, the, the eagle, the Filipino e uh, eagle, which is uh, widely regarded. But it's actually the carab caraboa, which is uh, a type of water buffalo. Uh, and then Indonesia is the Komodo dragon, uh, vulnerable. Australia, kangaroo, uh, least concern. Uh, and then Solomon Islands, they have the turtle. New Zealand, uh, kiwi, which is uh, endangered. So just a very cool map, and you can find that on Voucher Cloud if you just type in uh, mammals, a national mammals map, Voucher Cloud, you'll come across this map. Someone did make a, uh, a really good um, critique of this map, which is that uh, it shows uh, the kangaroo as a mammal in Australia, and it's actually a marsupial. So they, uh, they made a mistake there, but everything else is pretty accurate and just a nice map to look at. Uh, the next story that I want to talk about is uh, a really well-written piece in Nature called The UN Environment Program Needs New Powers. 50 years after its creation, the agency's member states must be must agree to be held accountable for their green promises. Uh, it's kind of a mystery article, though, because there's no uh, author on it. And maybe it's just hidden in the actual journal. But uh, anyways, it's very well written, very articulate. And I don't say that for all articles. But what the article is making an argument for uh, is that... The, the United Nations Environment Program has done a lot of great work, but there's a consistent theme of countries making promises and then not keeping them. So the argument is just saying the next step needs to uh, look at how the United Nations Environment Program can have some teeth, so it can be a regulatory force. Um, not regulatory in the sense of regulating countries, but just so that there's consequences to promises being broken after they're made, uh, after they're committed to, at the the United Nations level, and I, there was also um, some indications in that article that there might want to be looking at incentives, like rewards for countries that do keep their uh, promises as well, because right now, um, you know, these commitments are made, but there's really no. Uh, incentive or consequence to either keeping or breaking the promise. So uh, I would recommend checking out this article if you want to uh, see how well they build the narrative uh, for uh, this case. And uh, this piece led me to another, um, an, down another rabbit hole, which is they talked about how when the UNEP was founded, and they mention, and there's a picture here, if you if and if you can't see, because you're listening on the podcast, uh, it's a picture of Maurice Strong shaking the hand of uh, the Indian Prime Minister Indira Gandhi. So, what's happening in this picture is that 
Maurice Strong, a Canadian, uh, he founded the UNEP uh, before the Stockholm uh, 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 conference. And it, leading up to the conference, uh, Maurice Strong actually wasn't involved and the UNEP hadn't been founded at this point. But uh, they, Maurice Strong was recruited and we're going to talk about him recently, but he um, had a major influence in uh, in getting uh, that conference to be successful. And one of the, his big achievements was getting India to attend um, after they hadn't planned to not attend. Um, and then that gave the conference a lot more credibility and led to more high profile commitments at the conference. So uh, let's talk about him because he really interests me. Okay, so he has a really interesting story and I summarized it. So here's a picture of him. Uh, he's a Canadian, but he has um, an inspiring story, but it's not without controversy, controversy and somewhat of a mixed feelings in, my, in the ending here. So just to start off, he grew up in poverty in rural Manitoba in Canada. Uh, he ended up taking a northern trading post in the Hudson Bay Company where you actually live with Inuit and then learn their language. After that, he got into the Alberta oil industry, eventually moving up to vice president of finance at the notorious oil mongol Jack Gallagher's company. He volunteered his time to serve in corporate boards around Canada after his success in the uh, oil industry. And then this is the point where um, I had mentioned where the Swedish government actually um, uh, enrolled him to help build international relationships leading up to the 1972 Stockholm uh, conference. Developing nations were extremely skeptical of environmental issues at that point because they felt that developed nations were trying to halt their industrialization. And uh, Marie Strong is actually credited with turning the tide after visiting India and convincing the Prime Minister to attend the conference. Uh, we just were looking at the, that picture. The Stockholm conference led then to a declaration of principles and actions plan to deal with global environmental issues. In 19, uh, and then, in, then following that in December of 1972, the United General, General Assembly established the United Nations Environment Program and elected Strong to head it. In 1976, Strong goes back into the oil industry and leads Canada's national oil company, Petro-Canada. He leads the United Nations Famine Relief Program in Africa. He appointed then, he was then appointed as a Secretary General of the UN Conference on the Environment and Development, best known as the Earth Summit, held in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil in 1992, which produced the Agreement on Conventions of Climate Change and Biodiversity and launched a process which can be produced or which produced a convention on desertification. And then he worked pro bono for the Earth Council and sat on endless environmental government boards and advisory committees. In uh, his actual biography, it listed all the committees uh, in a, uh, he sat on and it was a very long list. 
So then uh, in 1992, he became the CEO of Ontario Hydro, the provincial electricity company. Uh, in 1999, he was appointed to restore the Compro uh, Compromised University of Peace in Costa Rica, which is like a United Nations uh, university. Uh, and then in 2003, he acts as the UN, UN envoy to humanitarian aid for North Korea. And he ends his career in China as an honor honorary professor at P Peking University. And then he passed away in 2015. So hearing this initial story made me very inspired and proud that he's a Canadian, founded the UNEP, and it showed the complexity of people, you know, because he has his ties, ties in oil. And as I say here, um, his, his well-connectedness um, left him open to quite a bit of criticism um, because essentially he was someone who was incredibly wealthy um, and then had those natural resource extraction ties. Um, but he did a lot of good. And um, to me, that wasn't the main issue. I mean, uh, sometimes I think that the wealthy people need to be in that position to do a lot of good. Uh, but what really disappointed me uh, in the end and kind of made me a little uncomfortable is that uh, when I was searching about um, trying to get more context and research about him, uh, I gave, I came across one of the last interviews that he did and uh, it's fairly uncomfortable. So he's talking about um, the criticism of him and He's talking about population control and stuff like that. And um, it's so as it says, and as I mentioned in his biography, he spent the, the, the remaining years of his life in China. And um, uh, it's just uh, uncomfortable how much he compliments the government and how uncomfortable it is about how he uh, criticizes the West. And don't get me wrong, uh, I think that we are subjected to a lot of propaganda that discredits a lot of the merit that China probably has. But the weird part about it is if you actually read the um, interview and you can find it in The Guardian if you type in Marie Strong on climate conspiracy and population control, is just that he literally, the interviewer clearly knew about his um, reputation for defending China and was really pushing that issue. And he couldn't find, Marie Strong couldn't find one critique of China. It was very like, China is good, China is great. Like he seemed very programmed. Um, it's just a very uncomfortable interview. And that disappointed me because it, there's there's something going on there that makes me kind of feel like there was some sort of compromise happening. Um, he was defending the one child only policy and he defended their overall approach. He had defended about how, how um, there needs to be um, different superpowers in the world and how China would be a great superpower. And I understand that there might be arguments for all that, but there's certainly room for criticism of uh, China's government in certain aspects too. And the fact that he just couldn't find one tiny criticism to make to lead people to think that he has some sort of integrity left makes you kind of question 
everything. So that's sort of a sad kind of a way to to end his extraordinary career. But you know, it just goes, it just adds to the complexity of him. You can't take away from from all the amazing things that he he did contribute to. This week was also Woman Women's Day, so uh, I just wanted to uh, wish all of the environmental professionals who are women, all women that are listening to this podcast, um, oh, happy Women's Day, and thanks for all you do and for being noble, but I specifically wanted to share um, this quote from uh, Katie Velik-Casco, who... Um, who I know quite well and uh, am always inspired by, where she says, work towards your vision on empowering the future by innovating and maintaining a sustainable and resilient ecosystem. And she says, I, re I salute all women out there for surpassing the challenges in life with grace. Each of us go through different challenges in life, but we choose to stand tall and continue to move forward. Happy International Women's Day. Um, on a little more somber note, a very more somber note, um, we have talked about Papua New Guinea in the past, and it seems like Papua New Guinea has really had, uh, is in the crosshairs of the palm oil industry, uh, which is not good because it's one of the most biodiverse, really last frontier of true wilderness left on the planet. But now a million hectares of Papua forest license uh, of Papa Forest has been licensed for clearing a new report show, shows and just saying that is um, absolutely a tragedy. So just to give you the summary, natural forest spanning 1.1 million hectares in Indonesia's Papa region have been slated for con conversion, mostly oil palm plantations according to a new report. For now, more than 99% of forests are still standing, but activists warn they will be vulnerable after moratorium on new oil palm plantations expires at the end of the year. The deforestation of these natural forests could be devastating for indigenous communities and rich wildlife and plants of this biodiverse region. Uh, so Indonesia has been really pushing for uh, the development of, uh, of West Papa and uh, you know, it's probably strategically strategic for their country, but as far as a global matter, uh, this is not good. This is not good and it cannot happen. So I think we all need to try to shine as much light on this and hopefully uh, some intervention could happen. Uh, so someone posted this in the group. Uh, it says, the headline, it says, new NASA satellite data prove carbon dioxide is greening the earth and restoring forests. And then it talks about how um, increased carbon dioxide is actually making the earth more green and, um, and that everything is balancing out and climate change is not to be worried about. So the reason that I bring this up is um, clearly uh, there's, there's issues with this, for example, uh, what they've actually found is it's true that there is increased greening to a certain uh, point, but what they found is there's a threshold. So 
plants uh, will increase their growth because of the extra CO2 in the atmosphere caused by human activity, but there's a threshold for how much that increase can happen before it before it wears off. So although it will mitigate some uh, climate change, it's not near to the point that needs to be mitigated. And climate change has been shown to be quite a uh, problem still. Um, it would be really nice if uh, plants just offset perfectly the amount of carbon that was being put into the air. But unfortunately, we are altering the climate cycle or the carbon cycle so drastically so quickly that uh, it's unlikely that 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 perfect match is going to happen and uh, in the studies show so far that uh, that uh, that climate change is uh, that, that that carbon uh, parts per million have been growing since industrialization and that they're having uh, impacts that are impacting the, the, the global climate so this website is not necessarily probably the most um, reliable one it's not hard to see that there's all types of like more conspiracy kind of stuff and also um, I know the person that posted this and that's kind of the take that he always has and there was a lot of pushback from people in my group saying like how can you allow this type of conspiracies to be posted to our group what if someone is posting about anti or what if someone is going to post about uh like a climate denial article or what if um you know what if uh you know it's propaganda so therefore it should be removed uh this person's a troll you know that is kind of their arguments for it being taken down it's anti-science um, whereas I would actually make the opposite point where you know there is a limit of course like it could probably become uh, just like any uh, one with an agenda it could become harassment after a while but I like to let these arguments and uh, articles take place because first of all I'm not the arbiter of truth I don't feel like I need to like protect you from reading this material because I'm saying oh it's fake and you're so stupid that you're gonna read this and just assume that it's true which is what people tend to get caught up on quite a bit and it's quite condescending actually second of all I mean when you hear this um, I think it's really healthy for professionals like us to walk through why it's not right and what what the science has been and the research is showing that this is actually um, not what seems to be occurring. Although there, that there's some truth mixed in with it, which there often is in these type of, types of um, of arguments. So I think for this the through the lens of something being anti-science, it seems to be a lot more anti-science to just shut down the conversation rather than. Um, actually having dialogue around it so um, I, I, I am quite um, uncomfortable with that knee-jerk reaction of uh, just trying to label someone as a troll label the argument as delete it um, so when these things come up even if it is a, a climate denial article or someone's denying climate change like we should be able to walk through the process on why on why um, we why that's not the case and what the what the data and the research that is currently available to us shows 
because uh, every major breakthrough has been an outlier at some point, and there always is that traditional academia that protects their own interests. Um, it feels threatened by it, and they slow uh, progress. So I would just like us to stay open-minded and allow uh, new ideas and be able to defend very confidently our own uh, ideas of what's happening in the world. Okay, so next, this is a 2015 article. I want to say it straight up uh, before we talk about it. So it's been a while still, but this, I still came across it because someone else posted it and I just thought it was so cool. So the first warm-blooded fish ever was discovered in 2015. It's the opa fish. So most fish are cold-blooded, uh, and this is an energy conservation technique but the trade-off is that their metabolism isn't as high and they generally move quite slow uh, but they don't have to produce the amount of en energy to keep warm uh, to, in order to survive but it seems like this species actually evolved to be a warm-blooded species there's other uh, indications where some species i think some species of shark have certain parts of their bodies that are warm-blooded but no uh, other species known has an actual entirely uh warm-blooded feature and the the thought behind this is that it gives this fish a competitive edge because when it dives deep it can swim faster than other predators and catch more prey so it's just fascinating to see this uh, little evolutionary advantage. Okay, I'm sure you all have heard this by now, but we still need to cover it because uh, it's pretty cool. Uh, so a cephalopod, uh, a cuttlefish, has passed a cognitive test designed for human children. So the cuttlefish, uh, uh, is uh, basically past the delayed gratification test. It, uh, it joins the primates, the corvids, which are the crows and ravens, and uh, I believe it's dogs, cat, uh, cats and dogs can also do it as well. And the test that's very well known um, for children is that they have, uh, I guess, marshmallows, and they say, uh, they hold out the marshmallow and they basically they'll do it in the, the species own language of course but what they try to demonstrate is can the species show that if if it's offered one marshmallow but it doesn't take it and it and it waits it'll get you know two or three marshmallows just because it waited so to demonstrate that on a human you would say you would give the marshmallow put the marshmallow but you say hey if you don't eat this i'll give you three later and if they can comprehend that then it shows that um, their cognitive level has reached a point where they can delay their gratification um, in order to reap their rewards later on and the cephalopod did accomplish that uh, obviously the test was designed differently because you can't speak to it but it was they were able to demonstrate that it could delay its gratification in order to reap rewards later and uh, I think this is quite surprising for people because we it's quite easy for us to imagine that primates have that uh, standard cognitive cognitive ability as well as 
maybe cats and dogs because we're around them so much, but we don't ne necessarily relate um, ocean life with intelligence and uh, and the cephalopod has done that. So very cool news. Uh, big news for uh, Andrew Steer, who uh, used to be the uh, the director of the World Resources Institute. If you're not familiar with the World Resources Institute, they're not a global nonprofit that does um, a lot of amazing environmental work. I've seen a lot of their work focused on urban sustainability, but they do really everything. And their leader, uh, Andrew Steer, has been chosen to lead Jeff Bezos' Earth Fund. So if you're not aware of the Earth Fund earlier this year, Jeff Bezos made a $10 billion commitment for um, his Earth Fund, which is uh, meant to do good for natural resources. He was already looking at purchasing large tracts of land in Vancouver and other things. So it looks like Andrew Steer is going to be leading that, that effort. It's an, a big job, but also probably the coolest job in the world to have essentially unlimited funds uh, to do what you want with. So big job for Andrew, but uh, really cool, really exciting um, to see what happens with the Earth Fund. Uh, this is unexpected. So um, an ancient am amphibian shed, uh, or sorry, an ancient amphibian has been found in Antarctica. Uh, this is the first time a frog fossil has ever been found uh, in that part of the world. It's a 40 million year old frog fossil in found in Seymour Island, which is near the Antarctic Peninsula. So that is uh, an indication that there was actually a thriving uh, life in the Antarctic region at some point in Earth's history. And uh, it certainly uh, opens the doors to making us all wonder what else we're going to find there, especially uh, using technology that can see things under ice or doing uh, marine diving. Uh, it's a new frontier that is going to un uncover all types of uh, new histories of the Earth and uh, help complete our picture of... Uh, of Earth's evolution, uh, of Earth's geological and evolutionary history, so really exciting. Okay, now you're updated on this week's environmental news. I'll be back next week. I'm still in a world of GIS pain in my uh, master's program, but that's not stopping me from keeping abreast of all of the environmental news. And I hope that uh, uh, it's brought you value. So we'll be back next week. Thank you for listening. Talk again very soon.